everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, I am back for another episode. It's been a couple weeks since I've been gone, and I'm so excited to be back. Thank you all for supporting me while I've been on paternity leave, because actually at the beginning of August, I welcomed my daughter into the world. And man, the last couple of weeks have just been a whirlwind of emotion and lack of sleep, but just joy every single second of the day. So I'm really, really happy I got to spend that time with my daughter and my wife. Both are doing amazing, but I am ready to get back to lights out. I know I've missed you guys. Hopefully you've missed me. And today I'm starting off with an absolutely insane episode on amusement park disasters. Amusement parks are one of those things that I've always loved. Since I was a kid, I went to Six Flags all the time. I went to water parks. And never once when I went did I ever think about something horrific happening to me or while I'm there enjoying myself sustaining some type of serious injury or even death. Despite four people dying in amusement parks every year, people still line up in droves to go to all the theme parks across the country. And I'm one of those people too. So one of the things that you don't think about while you're there though is your safety because you just assume all the rides have been tested, all the maintenance has been up to date, but still freak accidents happen. And we're gonna be covering a number of those today at different theme parks across the country. I don't know about you, but last time I went to a theme park, some of the rides there just should be decommissioned, taken down because they've been there for a long time. Like wooden roller coasters, like who wants to ride a wooden roller coaster these days? When you get on those roller coasters, I swear it feels like the tracks are going to fall out from right under you. It just kind of sways back and forth. It feels so rickety, but people love it. And so they keep those rides open. But just forewarning, this episode definitely is graphic in nature and maybe upsetting to some people because the nature of these deaths at amusement parks, as you could probably imagine, is very, very, very tragic and disturbing at times. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into that episode. But I also want to remind everybody that merch is still available at malharmerch.com. Our Lights Out collection from the summer is still up. I think there's still some items available. So if you haven't checked out the new Lights Out merch collection, go check it out. It's a great way to support the show. I really do appreciate it. Put a ton of work into this last collection. Also, my CBD company, HireLoveWellness.com. If you haven't checked that out yet, best CBD products in the world. This is top quality stuff, all grown here in Colorado. I'm very, very proud of it. I basically run the company myself. So it's another great way to support me and my business. And that's HireLoveWellness.com. And you can use code LIGHTSOUT for 10% off. But let's go ahead and just jump right into this episode here. So... The first disaster on our list is about the irony of safety mechanisms that later become death traps. It's also a brutal lesson on weight distribution on water rafts. So in Kansas City, Kansas, the Schlitterbahn Water Park opened its doors on July 15, 2009. Locals were excited to finally get the massive $750 million 40-acre water park in their city. But instead of becoming known as a fun place to cool off, only a few years later, it became known for one of the worst deaths imaginable. One of the 12 water slides in the park was named Verrucht, which means crazy in German. It stood nearly 170 feet tall, making it the world's tallest water slide. And it was advertised actually as taller than Niagara Falls. So think about that for a second, 170 foot 
water slide. Me personally, I think the water park here in the Denver area has a water slide that's maybe 50 to 100 feet tall. I don't know the exact height on it, but even at that height, when you're looking down, you're like, how am I not going to fall off of this thing? Well, they had the 170 foot Niagara Falls water slide. And after several delays, the slide finally opened on July 10th, 2014. Now this particular slide had to be written on a three person raft and they put in a security net, which wrapped around the top of the slide. The netting was held up by metal half circle bars placed along the slide. They were installed to prevent the raft and the riders from flying off of the slide. But this safety measure ended up being the most dangerous contraption in the entire park. In August 2016, a 10-year-old named Caleb Schwab visited the park. His father was Scott Schwab, a member of the Kansas House of Representatives. And when they got to the park, he told Caleb and his brother to stick together. Caleb wanted to ride Verruckt, but his brother didn't want to. So he said he would wait for Caleb at the end of the slide. As Caleb stood in line and looked up at the slide, he watched the riders plunge seven stories on the first drop. Their screams filled the air as they made it to the first incline and water splashed from the first drop. Their screams filled the air as they made it to the first incline and water splashed from the sides. When Caleb finally got to the top of the ride, he sat in the front of the raft and two other women sat behind him. Caleb, at 10 years old, was only 75 pounds and the women behind him were 197 pounds and 275 pounds. So since he was the smallest, when you're putting people on these rafts, it's all about weight distribution. You have two significantly heavier people who should be on either side, one in the front, one in the back with Caleb in the middle, because then that would evenly distribute the weight across the raft. Well, whoever was working that day missed that and put Caleb in the front and they sent the raft down without a second thought. On the initial drop down the slides, they reached 65 miles per hour. That is super, super fast. And then they made it to the lower bump. And as the raft rode up the small incline, as you can imagine, 65 miles per hour down, boom, it hits that small incline. And the raft went airborne because of the uneven weight distribution. And sadly, Caleb flew up into the netting. His neck went straight into the metal netting support and his spinal cord separated from his skull and he died instantaneously. His death was considered a decapitation, although his head didn't separate from his body completely. The other passengers also hit the safety contraption, but only suffered a broken jaw and a broken facial bone. By the time the raft reached the end of the ride though, Caleb's brother was waiting for him. But as he came down the slide, it was clear that Caleb was no longer alive. After his death, the park was closed for inspection and investigators figured that Caleb should have never been in the front seat of the raft. There were still four pounds under the total weight limit, but again, the weight wasn't distributed properly. The engineers that did the inspection on the ride afterwards noticed that the safety net and its metal supports were incredibly dangerous to anyone who rode the ride. Even if riders reached their arms out, the metal supports could have broken their limbs at 65 miles per hour. And unfortunately, despite realizing all of this, it was far too late because poor Caleb had already lost his life. 
The engineers later found that the ride went against several safety guidelines for amusement rides. They should have used over-the-shoulder restraints for riders and an upstop mechanism to prevent the raft from going airborne. You would think that they would fucking make sure that these rafts are not going to go airborne down a slide that is seven stories tall. I just can't believe the idiocy sometimes with, with these theme parks. It's like, how do you not test that? Why don't they send dummies down on a raft that are that mimic humans and see what happens if you don't load the raft properly? I just don't understand how they make such a big mistake like this. But of course, as you can imagine, Farouked was closed indefinitely. But the park actually opened just three days after Caleb's death, and the ride was eventually demolished in 2018. And during that same year, the park closed its doors for good. By the end, four of the rides had been shut down due to safety concerns. And by the end of 2021, the park was completely demolished. That $750 million park completely demolished. The ride's designer, John Schooley, and the park owner, Jeff Henry, were charged with second-degree murder, as they should. But those charges were later dropped. And despite this, and no justice in this, Caleb's death will never be forgotten. Can imagine how his parents feel and his brother feels. And although many call the tragedy a freak accident, there were obviously plenty of ways that his death could have been prevented. So moving into the next disaster we're going to cover... This is about a ride that should have been as innocent as its name suggests, but it would sadly end up causing a family, a lifetime of heartbreaking tragedy. Disneyland is usually a place where parents take their kids to form magical memories, but for Brandon Zucker and his family, their experience was overshadowed by terror. Mickey's Toontown opened in 1988 and it was inspired by the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit? The park included a ride in 1994 called Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin. A big yellow taxi cab could be seen smashing through a building just above the sign. Its headlights were big, cartoon eyes, and it had a giant smile on its face. It had all the signs of being a family-friendly ride. Inside the ride, yellow cartoon cabs ran on rails and they took the guests through a cartoon land filled with characters and goofy settings. Inside the car, there was a wheel that guests could turn to make the car spin around. On the side of the cabs, there was a small opening where the riders could enter and exit the cab. Once seated, a black metal bar would come down and strap them into the cab. So in the summer of 2000, Brandon and his family got on the ride, not realizing the slow-moving cab was a death trap. Brandon, his brother, and his mom got into one of the cabs, and Brandon was only four years old at the time. And he was seated at the end of the seat just next to the opening. Unknown to the family, it was against the ride's guidelines to have a child by the opening. The workers also didn't check to see if the safety bar was all the way down. So as the ride got going and the car took a spin, Brandon fell out of the opening and he tumbled all the way down to the tracks. The ride kept moving along and the next cab behind him ended up running him over. To make things even worse, the cab that ran him over had his dad and grandmother inside and his family screamed for help but the ride continued. The cab pinned Brandon to the rails and dragged him 10 feet along the tracks. As it dragged him, it slowly folded his body in half. And when the ride finally stopped, Brandon's body was stuck under the cab for 10 minutes. And during those grueling 10 minutes, he was mostly unresponsive. When they finally got him loose, he was still alive. He had experienced physical trauma across his entire body, and the accident also left him with severe brain damage. After rushing him to the hospital, Brandon would never speak 
or even walk again. His mother sat beside his hospital bed every night, whispering in his ear. She'd say, get up. Let's get out of here. Let's go home. But Brandon never recovered from his injuries. And for years, he was in and out of different children's hospitals trying to battle his severe brain injury. As eight years passed, Brandon turned 13. He had suffered from this trauma for most of his life. And sadly, one night he fell asleep and never woke up. And he died from complications of his injuries. After the tragedy, the ride engineers added closing safety doors and sensors on the front of the cab so this wouldn't happen again. And currently, this section of the park is closed for refurbishment, and we can only hope that all the rides will include safety features so no other family will have to go through what the Zuckers went through. It's one of the number one things that absolutely scares me about theme parks, and this was Disneyland. The employees, like I know some of you might work at theme parks out there, but I swear sometimes I've been to theme parks and the employees just don't look like they even care about what they're doing. And this goes back to the theme parks, not hiring qualified people, not training them, not paying them correctly. But it's scary. It's scary to think that you're getting on these machines that can kill you. And yet the people operating them oftentimes have no idea what they're doing. They don't know the safety precautions they're supposed to be following, or they just don't care and they just forget. And sadly, this could have absolutely been avoided had the bar been checked and they had known that the child is not supposed to sit on the outside of the cab. Absolutely devastating. So the next amusement park tragedy we're going to talk about has raised a debate whether the victim or the park was in the wrong. This accident took place at Cedar Point in Ohio. Cedar Point sits along Lake Erie, and it's often been advertised as the best roller coaster park in the world. Stretching 364 acres, it has 72 attractions and 16 roller coasters. Five of the roller coasters are over 200 feet tall, and the park sees over 3 million visitors every year. One of the roller coasters that tears through the park is called the Raptor. It's a steel inverted roller coaster where your legs hang off the ride. When it was built in 1994, it cost $12 million. It was the tallest, fastest, and longest inverted roller coaster in the world. With a total of six inversions, including one Cobra roll, the Raptor was no joke. And even though the ride itself was safe, it's still a fast metal contraption moving at speeds up to 57 miles per hour. And in August 2015, 45-year-old James Young visited Cedar Point with a few of his friends. Things had been going pretty well for James. He had just gotten a new job as a special education teacher, so they decided to celebrate by going to spend a day at the theme park. Just before 5 p.m., James had just ridden the Raptor. He had gotten off the ride and realized his cell phone and a few other things had fallen out of his pockets. So he figured he'd go look for his stuff. But the ride is surrounded by two fences. James stood six foot six, and the first fence was four feet tall, and the second fence was about five to six feet tall, which was up to code. But the ride was surrounded by signs that said, warning, restricted area, do not enter. At first, James walked around the ride looking for his cell phone on the safe side of the fence. When he couldn't find it, he decided to hop the safety fences, and he eventually spotted his phone where the roller coaster rail sat close to the ground. He ran over and picked it up. But just as he stood back up, the roller coaster bashed into him at full speed. It's unknown whether he died instantly or he initially survived the impact. 
but by the time paramedics arrived 20 minutes later, James was pronounced dead at the scene. Luckily, no one else was injured, but in the aftermath of his death, his family said they had no idea why James would do something so careless. While some amusement park tragedies are caused by a lack of safety, the Raptor ride had two safety fences and several warning signs. So when people urged the park to raise the height of the fences, they refused. And James's family members thought that even though James had made a dumb mistake, the park should make the area impossible to reach by visitors. Many believe the park refused to raise the height of the fence because it kind of proved their liability in this case. But most agree that James continuously ignored the safety measures in place just to get his phone back. And his lack of judgment came at the ultimate cost. That one is extremely difficult because obviously there was warning signs, there's two fences, and I I mean, I don't know really what else the theme park could do other than perhaps raise the height of the fence, put an electric wire around it perhaps, but I mean, he saw the warning signs and he took that chance to get his phone and, oh man, I just, nothing is worth risking your life at that point. I mean, get a new phone or have them shut the ride down and then have one of the employees go get the phone, but never take it upon yourself to jump in there and try to grab your phone when a ride is moving. But the next disaster we're going to talk about isn't one you'd actually expect. Most tragedies at amusement parks involve safety malfunctions or negligence, but this one involves a vicious swamp creature in shallow water. When you usually think of Disney World, the last thing that comes to mind is alligators unless you've been there. But in 2016, their threat became known on a national scale. Two-year-old Lane Graves and his family traveled to Disney World from Nebraska. The entire Disney World property surrounds a man-made lagoon called the Seven Seas Lagoon. Since this area of Florida is known to have alligators, I mean, pretty much they're everywhere, they naturally made the lagoon their home. And the park realized this was a problem, so during the peak season, the park employees caught one alligator per day. And they also put no swimming signs all around the lagoon. Earlier in the day on June 14, 2016, two guests at the Grand Floridian Resort reported seeing an alligator near the beach. At 8 p.m., the Graves family gathered near the same beach to watch a movie. And as the movie played, Lane was building a sandcastle with some other children. They went out to collect buckets of water, but they only stood ankle deep. One of the guests who had seen an alligator from his hotel porch earlier in the day now saw the children going out in the water. Quickly, he got up to go warn the family, but by then it was too late. Lane's mother's screams were heard throughout the resort. An alligator had been quietly prowling the shoreline, and as Lane went to fill a bucket of water one last time, the alligator lunged from the depths and grabbed him by the head. The alligator's jaws fully engulfed Lane's head, and his father ran out to try and save him. He grabbed onto the alligator's jaws to try and pry his son free, but it was no use. The alligator then pulled away and dragged Lane further into the lagoon. The alligator then darted into deeper water, and the last thing his family saw was his son's shoes before disappearing under the surface. And it took over 16 hours to recover his body, and he had died from a neck injury and drowning. Wildlife experts have said that this was a typical predator attack. The alligator thought that Lane was a small animal in its hunting ground, so it attacked. In response to the tragedy, park employees captured and killed five alligators in the lagoon. Disney World then added alligator warning signs to the shores in addition to the no swimming signs. And the park now has a reputation for lethal alligators. 
Lane's death continues to be heartbreaking for the Graves family, as you can possibly imagine, but they decided not to sue the park. Instead, they set up a foundation in their son's name, the Lane Thomas Foundation, which supports families of children who need life-saving organ transplants. Oh, man. So at least a silver lining came out of this horrific tragedy, but this is something that absolutely terrifies me about Florida, is that you could be at a park, and there could be a pond, and you could be walking around with your child, and you have no idea that an alligator is there. Alligators are super good at hiding and they're they can sit right at right below the surface oftentimes you have no idea they're even there i've been to florida quite a few times i actually love florida and i plan on taking my children to florida but one thing i will never do is let my kids run around pools of fresh water ponds lakes whatever it may even the ocean always will keep them away from that because i just know how quickly these alligators move i've been to the everglades national park even and when you go there, you just walk along this path into the Everglades and there's just gators all over the place, like on either sides of the path. And I remember uh, going there for the first time and walking down the path and all of a sudden there's just gators surrounding you on either sides. And I remember they start kind of hissing at you a little bit and then they lunge and they're quick. These alligators are super quick and their jaws, if they get it a handle on you, I mean, they are very very hard to break away from they're extremely strong animals so this is just an absolute tragic one a tragic accident that again probably could have been avoided with some better signage and things like that but again uh just all it takes is that one moment when you're looking away and something bad happens so scary so we're now going to take a look at a theme park disaster on our list that might be a little bit less of a surprise especially because it involves a human catapult. Out in Middlemore Watermark in the UK, colorful rafts and rides are used to float in its waters. Now the attractions are gone and the park is permanently closed, and this tragedy might have had something to do with it. On the park's shore, they had built a trebuchet, which, if you don't know what that is, it's a medieval contraption made for hurling large stones into castle walls. But here they launched humans out into a large safety net, in November of 2002, a 19-year-old student named Dino Yankov visited the park hoping to get safely hurled across the property. He was an incredibly smart biochemistry student from Oxford, and his friends knew him as a thrill seeker. He was even a member of a stunt crew at Oxford. So when he heard about the human catapult, he immediately wanted to try it. The contraption was a large wooden weapon held together by metal screws and supports. A massive weight was connected to a long wooden arm that was then connected to a sling. And when the weight dropped, it launched the arm and flung whatever or whoever was at the end of the sling. And for whatever reason, this ride didn't need a license to operate, even though it was incredibly dangerous. It cost 20 pounds to get on the ride one at a time. And when it came to Dino's turn, the contraption launched him towards the safety net. He soared 75 feet into the air. But as he landed on the net, he hit the edge of it instead of the middle, and he fell from the side of the net and plummeted to the ground. When he hit the ground, they immediately called an ambulance, but when paramedics arrived, he was pronounced dead at the scene. The impact had killed him almost immediately. In the aftermath, people found out the ride had never been given an independent safety check. The Middlemore Park employees had given it a safety check themselves, and the ride had operated normally for several hundred guests. 
but something must have changed when Dino launched out of the sling, and unfortunately the malfunction is still a mystery, and no one knows why Dino's flight was way off course. The owners of the operation were charged but later acquitted for manslaughter, and luckily the park and the trebuchet are long gone. All that remains is an empty shore and a small lake. But Dino's tragedy is a lesson for us all. If a ride looks stupid and dangerous, it probably is. Probably avoid it. But let's head back to Disneyland for this next one. For a place being so magical and wholesome, it seems to have an endless list of disasters and deaths. Even though it proclaims that it's the happiest place on earth, it seems to have its fair share of hell. In 1974, a young Disneyland cast member named Deborah Stone worked as a hostess on the ride called America Sings. It was an animatronic musical attraction, and this attraction was inside the old Progressland Theater, where they had showcased technology as it progressed through the decades. This was one of the most popular attractions in the park, but it was later dismantled and shipped to Disney World in Florida. They then decided to fill the empty theater with a show called America Sings. The show celebrated the history of American music with a cast of animatronic animals that sang and played different instruments. It had several acts, and the circular stage at the center of the theater rotated every act. Each act showed the next era of music, and Deborah's job was to greet the guests when they entered the attraction. She took the summer job so she could save up money to go to college at Iowa State University in the fall. On the night of July 8, 1974, she called her parents and told them that she had fallen in love with her boyfriend. She wanted to get married and she felt like her whole life was just beginning. And this talk about how her future was looking ended up being the last conversation she ever had with her parents. The attraction had only been open for nine days before the incident. At 10.30 p.m. that night, the last show of the day began. She greeted the guests like she always did and the show went on. But as the audience was reaching the last several acts, as the stage rotated, a few audience members heard a faint scream of terror behind one of the walls. So they went to notify the closest cast member. Some people even thought that the scream was part of the show. But when cast members found Deborah, she had been crushed to death between the rotating stage wall and the stationary theater wall. When paramedics arrived, she was immediately pronounced dead. And exactly how she died is still a mystery. Since no one was with her when she died, they had no clue how she had become trapped near the rotating wall. She either fell, stepped backwards, or dangerously tried to jump from one stage to the other while it was rotating. Either way, the attraction designers realized they had a serious fatal design flaw, and the attraction closed for two days as they cleaned up the scene. And when it reopened, the engineers installed breakaway walls and indicator lights for when the stages rotated. Supposedly, Deborah's family tried to sue the park, but they lost in court because it was ruled that she wasn't following safety instructions. The family eventually reached a small settlement for her death after months of fighting with the park's legal team. And today, Deborah is still remembered 40 years later, and she's referred to as the only cast member to die at Disneyland. Strange enough, one of the voice actors for the animatronics had previously refused to enter the America Sings Theater. He actually had a premonition that he would somehow die inside. He clearly had a feeling that something was unsafe about the attraction, and he was right. The ride eventually closed down several years later, and unfortunately this ride is mostly remembered for Deborah's death. The building went through several changes over the next several decades, and for one of the attractions, engineers suggested that they use the rotating stage again, but many turned down the idea for good reason. Many of the animal animatronics were later moved to Splash Mountain, 
and today the old theater building holds the Star Wars launch bay. And the dangerous rotating stage that took Deborah's life hasn't been used in years. And hopefully it will stay that way. And with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break. Thank our sponsors for today and I'll be right back. You would think that after all these years and all of the tragedies and deaths that have occurred at theme parks, that we'd have figured out how to perfect the engineering around the rides much better than we actually do. But the flip side of that is people that create amusement parks and are constantly trying to innovate their rides and thrill people. So oftentimes they come up with new and strange mechanical attractions that move at high speeds, especially roller coasters. And these oftentimes end up being death traps. At the Chapultepec Fair in Mexico City, one of the roller coasters literally went off the rails just a few years ago. Named the Chimera, this roller coaster was the most iconic ride in the park. Each year it drew thousands of people. The crazy twists and inversions made it the thrill that guests were looking for, and its bright yellow rails lit up the sky. But on September 28, 2019, the roller coaster whipped around its last turn. A crunching noise came before a loud snap. The last carriage disconnected from the one ahead and broke off the rails, and the carriage and its four riders plunged 30 feet to the ground. Two men died immediately on impact, and two women were severely injured. This single tragedy would mark the end of the entire park, and the park closed its doors on October 13, 2019, after its operations permits were revoked a few weeks after the crash. In the end, investigations determined that the accident was caused by a lack of maintenance. There was damage to the tracks, support beams, and joints, and some of the carriages had broken safety bars. And crazy enough, the screws that they were using on the ride did not match the ride specifications, which was ruled to be the cause of the derailment and the deaths. The ride was only 58% safe for operation at the time. After closing, the entire park stayed deserted for two years before local authorities figured out what to do with it, until finally the demolition of the park began in July 2021. It wasn't worth trying to salvage the countless number of unsafe roller coasters on the park, and its last roller coaster was finally knocked down on April 8, 2022. As for the property, a new $180 million park will be built in its place, but the rides will be a mild thrill at best. Most of the park will be focused on sights and sounds like gardens and music stages, and hopefully they'll be able to avoid the poorly maintained death traps this time. This next disaster is actually crazy. While some of these tragedies end up with the whole park being closed down or even manslaughter charges, a Six Flags Great Adventure Park somehow got away with the death of several teenagers through a few legal loopholes. On May 11, 1984, a group of friends visited Six Flags in Jackson Township, New Jersey. The attraction they wanted to see was the Haunted Castle. It was a walkthrough attraction where guests would walk along a series of narrow and dark corridors. Lights, sounds, decorations, and actors and costumes were used to terrify the guests around every turn. The attraction did a good job at actually looking like a haunted castle, but it was actually a series of truck containers that had been put together and decorated. A long maze of hallways was built inside. The whole building was divided into two parts that were identical. One side would open when it wasn't that busy, and when there were more guests, they would open the other side. A control room sat at the center of the castle where cast members could change their wardrobe and monitor the rest of the attraction. On May 11th, only one side of the castle was open. Guests had slowly filtered in through a steady rate just around 6.30 p.m. when a small fire broke out. One of the guests had seen one of the teenage boys use a cigarette lighter to find his way through a dark part of the maze. 
As he walked through the hallway, the lighter had gotten too close to a ripped piece of foam that dangled from a foam wall, and the foam immediately ignited. And the fire spread rapidly through the hallway. Even though the trailer walls were made from aluminum, they were packed with flammable materials like plywood walls, cloth, wood props, and foam crash pads. As smoke filled the hallways, the people inside panicked and ran through the maze to try and find the exit. But the inside had been built to be a confusing series of corridors. The first guest to get to the exit of the haunted castle said that he had crashed into several walls trying to escape. He also said the first time he saw the flames and smoke, he thought it was just another special effect. So it took him a minute to realize that there was something actually wrong. Nearby people called 911 and firefighters arrived within minutes. But by then the fire had engulfed nearly half the building. Everyone thought all the guests had made it outside safely. But after the fires were extinguished and the firefighters investigated the building, they found eight bodies in the wreckage. Most of them were in the same narrow hallway. At first, their burned bodies were so charred and mangled they were mistaken for burnt mannequins and props, and the bodies of the eight teenagers had to be identified by their dental records. Even though the cause of the fire was a cigarette lighter, the teenager wasn't blamed. Park management and safety level inspection agencies were accused of allowing the haunted castle to operate without proper safety systems. There were no smoke alarms and no sprinkler systems installed inside the attraction. Both of these things were recommended by fire safety consultants, but they weren't mandatory. The castle was legally considered a temporary structure, so building codes didn't apply, even though the castle had been there for five years. After an investigation, it was also discovered that the exit lights and fittings were in poor condition when the fire broke out, bulbs were missing and broken on many of the emergency lights, and the dangling foam that first lit on fire shouldn't have been dangling in the first place. Shift managers also reported that guests had used matches and lighters to light their way through the dark hallways before, but nothing was changed. When staff had brought these problems up with senior management, they were ignored. The workers even staged a walkout in protest the year before, and in the same year, one of the employees had filled out a form reporting safety violations. They said there were too many to mention, and even after all this, the park and its parent company were cleared of any wrongdoing. A jury ended up blaming Jackson Township officials for the disaster. The park had technically followed the city fire code regulations, so the blame was put on the city for not having stricter ones. Eight civil lawsuits from the families were later brought against the park, and seven were settled out of court. Each settlement was $2.5 million. The last remaining suit went to trial, and the family was awarded much less. Luckily, the safety codes were finally revised, and structures like the Haunted Castle required fire detection systems. And if these were ever to be activated, all lights should come on, and all music and electronic sound should be muted. Several other states have also changed their safety codes, leading to a massive change in theme park safety across the country, and this led to many parks going out of business. The Six Flags Great Adventure Park in New Jersey almost went out of business a few years later in 1987 because of the lawsuits and negative coverage after the fire, but it somehow survived, and the park still operates today. The trailers that made up the Haunted Castle were removed after the fire, and a new ride has replaced it, the Cyborg Cyberspin. And if you visit the park today, you'd have no idea 18 eaters perished right there. Even though the castle is gone, it's never forgotten. This tragedy that killed 18 eaters will always be remembered as a tragedy that led to an update in safety codes across the country. And it's a shame that so many had to die to finally get reasonable safety codes. The teenagers that were victims of this horrible tragedy were Nicola Cayeza, who was 18 years old, Joseph Beirudi, who was 17, Tina Genovese, who was 15, Eric Rodriguez, who was 18, Samuel Valentin, who was 17, 
Lenny Ruiz, who was 17, Jose Carrion, who was 17, and Christopher Harrison, who was 17. It's horribly tragic. And again, this whole thing could have been avoided had there been any sort of safety inspection followed, had there been fire detection devices inside of this thing. It's just crazy that they were allowed to run for so many years without any of this in place. I mean, I'm trying to think the last time I went to a haunted house, even they've got exits at every other turn and they light up those exits, which are, which is good. Most of the times, I mean, I don't know all haunted houses. If they do that, but I know at least the ones here locally, they have the exit signs. So, you know, in the event that something were to catch on fire, emergency happens, you know, where your exits are and they're placed along the entire route of the haunted house, which is, which is clearly what should have happened here at the haunted castle, but just did not. And lastly, I'm going to end with a theme park tragedy that occurred at the icon park entertainment complex in Orlando, Florida on the Orlando free fall ride. And this horrible tragedy occurred on March 24th, 2022 when Tyrese Sampson, who was 14 years old, got on this free fall thrill ride, which is a pretty new ride, I believe at the time and what happened here is gross negligence by the staff that was operating this ride so Tyree was a hundred pounds over the limit for this ride so he's already too big to ride it and so he goes and gets on this free fall ride which is one that takes you all the way up and then it drops you down and free falls and the you sit in the seat and then you pull over the harness over you and this takes you up 430 feet and then drops you. So according to a report, a bystander video of this incident shows the gap in Tyree's seat was between six and seven inches more than the restraint opening for other seats, which was 3.3 inches. So you know you gotta pull it down, you gotta pull it down so far to the point where you gotta latch. A lot of times they have like a seat belt that they latch, sometimes they don't, but it kind of clicks into place. Well, his was like open, like it was not anywhere close to being as low as it should have been and so the ride operators just missed this and so Tyree went up on this free fall ride and the bar opened up to 11 inches and investigators said that Tyree slipped through the gap between the seat and the harness as the ride fell down his harness was still in the down position when the ride came to a stop and this particular ride actually did not have the seat belt so again, as this drop tower ride went down, poor Tyree slid out from under the seat and fell more than 100 feet to the pavement and died. This is a horribly tragic death that could have been easily prevented. Tyree's family believes that if even if this ride had had a seatbelt, so on the harness it seatbelts into the actual seat, then Tyree likely wouldn't have actually slid completely out from underneath the harness on the ride. So after this happened, they obviously brought in a forensic engineering firm hired by the state of Florida in order to investigate this ride. And they found that Tyree Sampson was not properly secured in the seat and a safety sensor had been manually adjusted, increasing the gap between the restraint harness and the seat. So somebody increased the actual amount of space in order for the ride to go up. Cause a lot of these rides don't go up unless all the sensors are in a safe position, but somebody altered this. As a result of Tyree's death, the family has filed a civil wrongful death lawsuit uh, against the owners of this icon park. And in this lawsuit, they also claim that there were no signs near or on the ride, which has a maximum passenger weight of about 287 pounds. 
indicating size restrictions that Tyree should not have been allowed to go on the ride because of his size. He was 380 pounds. So their lawsuit is in hopes to prevent something like this from happening again. But even today, even this year, negligence at theme parks, fairs are still happening. Even recently, I remember driving past like my uh, uh, town that I live near has like a local fair and some of the rides that they bring in. I'm just like, I just don't want to even ever get on those because they're they're on like trailers and they're not actually like cemented into the ground. And sometimes when they go up, they kind of like lean back and forth. I'm just like so many of these rides at theme parks and fairs and stuff are just not that safe. And ah, man, I love theme parks and I love riding roller coasters and all that. But ah, sometimes I'm like is it even worth getting on some of these things because it seems like there's just so many accidents that happen and employees aren't doing their jobs who are operating these rides and all it takes is that one thing to happen and it could change your life forever so i don't know man this this whole episode just is as disturbing and horrible and tragic as it is it's just like for me it just creates so much awareness around rides and amusement parks and looking into the history of the amusement park before you go and you know if there's a ride that you go to you know a local fair or a park you've never been to before that you think might be unsafe chances are it it might actually be unsafe just because you know people work there and they're selling tickets for it doesn't mean that they can guarantee your safety on it and as always always follow the rules and signs that they have posted and don't try to sneak on rides that you're not big enough for i know that's that's a tough one with kids is they always want to go on rides that they're not tall enough for but there's a reason they have those height restrictions and weight restrictions as we just saw with poor tyree sampson but oh man amusement parks do you like them? Do you go? Have you ever had an experience at an amusement park that was uh, made you feel unsafe? Or hopefully none of you have ever experienced an actual accident at a theme park. But let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. you be interested to see uh, and hear anybody else's experiences. But for me, I know I'm going to stay uh, far away from them for a while. And when I do go, I'm going to make sure I do my research and make sure that these rides are safe and that the operators are reputable and obviously make sure that these rides and parks are actually maintaining their rides and meeting the safety regulations that are required uh, by the states that they're in. But this was an absolutely crazy episode, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, if you found this one intriguing, let me know. Again, easy way to support the show. Subscribe on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can follow us there. It really does help me out. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap today's episode there. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. And I will see you next time. Until then, lights out, everybody.